Hello and welcome back to Freedom Machines with Freddie Dobbs. This is a first for me. I'm recording this podcast episode from my car, from the Fiat 500 in a Starbucks car park. I've just had someone parking up right next to me. And the reason being, Monica's got her auntie over. So we're currently in a two-bedroom flat with four people. (coughs) And I don't think it's fair me shouting, doing a podcast and taking up the whole apartment. So... Monica is currently having a coffee, doing a bit of video editing, and I can see her right now in the window of Starbucks, drinking a coffee and editing away, and I'm sitting in a car. It may look slightly weird, but it's the great thing about this. doesn't matter. I could be doing this podcast absolutely anywhere, and it makes no difference. I just hope I don't need internet to search for anything. I think I've got everything I need right here, so let's begin. And I will begin... Uh, let's begin with an apology, because I may, I may have got my information slightly wrong. Let me go back a little bit. This is with regards to subscriptions for motorcycles, where we've been having the argument, the discussion that, you know, what BMW and KTM and other motorcycle brands have been doing is just another way to grab money off bikers, whereby they kit a bike out, in essence, with everything. And you then pay a, a fee to be able to just switch on with a piece of software that, uh, that specific thing, whether it be the heated grips. I may well have been slightly under the impression that it's a subscription service, or at least with some of these motorcycles, it's a subscription service where you pay X amount a month. And, and I'm really curious on this. Just before I get to this, this email that I've had from a kind German listener, let me know, have you had experience where you've had to pay a subscription fee for elements of the bike that you want to turn on, whether it be a quick shifter or heated grips or stuff like that? Or is it just a one-off fee? Because I've had this email come in from... From Bastian in Germany. Fantastic to know there's uh, got a listener in Germany. So thank you, Bastian, for sending this in. Have a listen to this, everyone. I begin. Freddie, KTM feature subscription. I think we need to seriously stop to imply to the listeners there was any monthly subscription model, active or planned. It just isn't. It is a one-time payment to enable a feature. KTM does nothing else than BMW Motorrad did since many years with the likes of USB-like dongle acti- uh, activating certain features. On my current 2005 Audi car, the switch and wiring for heated mirrors is always installed and I just need to replace the glass-only mirrors with the glass-plus heat mat ones to have heated mirrors on my car, which I enjoy. Now... Per the logic of some pessimistic customers, everyone ordering heated mirrors is paying for the wires that they already installed on every car. You'll realise it's just a question of production efficiency not to stock cars with mot- uh, and motorbikes with a zillion different options, but to allow end customers to differentiate per their liking. Yeah, you know, this is actually... Uh, just stop there, just for a second, Bastian. But this is, this is what friend of mine Danny was saying actually um, it's economies of scale it actually makes more sense um, I continue that's for the manufacturers or that's from the manufacturer's perspective now more importantly I think the soft enabled features such as per KTM offers crucial benefit for the used bike market Nowadays, if I buy a used bike, I need to carefully screen and filter to get a used bike with the optional extras that I wish to have. With a KTM, I just buy any used bike in the right condition and price. And if any feature is not activated, I just pay for it and I'll then enjoy my heated grips and quick shifter. Cheers and all the best from Germany. Do you know what? Bastian, I mean this completely honestly, both yourself and Danny from a few weeks ago, you've probably, and I mean it, you've probably sold it to me. Uh, I get the benefits of it. I get the economies of scale. And I also get the fact that on the used market, it means you can, you can tailor a bike 
to your requirements. I get that. And if I was wrong about the subscription service, whereby you don't have to pay X amount on a monthly basis, and it looks like I'm wrong with that, then, then I get it. Yeah, then I get it. I do. So thank you for sending that over, Bastion. Yeah. Yep, yourself and Danny from a few weeks ago, I think you've convinced me and, uh, and that's fair enough. Anyone, anyone who, who knows of a biking brand where you have to pay monthly for those things, on the other hand, um, let me know. But to the best of my knowledge from doing a bit of research, it looks like I was probably wrong with that. So yeah, I'm sold. I'm sold. Let me revisit something here now. I'm moving on. Have a great Christmas, Bastion. Uh, to Nigel. I want to revisit this because last week, oh God, maybe it was a couple of weeks ago, time has just flown recently. Last week, Nigel sent me an email saying his partner, who's, who's on the shorter side, about five foot two, is struggling to find a, a full license compliant motorcycle with a low seat height. I then sent Nigel over a list of different bikes, such as the Honda Rebel 500, Harley-Davidson Sportster, and a couple of others. And I sent these vehicles, these motorcycles over with, with the understanding that it had to be 45cc, uh, 45 horsepower minimum in order to be able to be a, an A2 licensed compliant motorcycle. But I got slightly the wrong end of the stick because it's slightly different and it's slightly complicated. And this is often the problem with the system we have in the UK and Europe, I think in Australia as well. It's, it's so damn complicated. Here's the issue. Let me read out Nigel's email. And I've done some research on this now, Nigel. So first of all, listen to Nigel's email. Freddie, now I'm writing this with a different angle to your recent podcast about bikes for a shorter rider and I'm interested to know if you've got, uh, if you've had similar thoughts to me on this. I've been looking for a suitable bike for my partner who's five foot two and currently riding a 125 to take her A license. Okay, so A license for anyone not familiar with how it works in Europe. A license is direct access. You pass your A license and it means you can ride any bike, any size, no restriction at all. I carry on. Um, looking to take my A license on that has at least the required, I think, 55 horsepower needed. I think actually it may be 53 horsepower, Nigel, but it's, it's neither here nor there. 53, 55. Um, has at least the required, I think, 55 horsepower needed so that she can ride any size machine without restriction. As you've discussed on the podcast, there are several suitable candidates which, upon closer scrutiny, are under 50 horsepower. The outcome of my partner having to pass a test on, let's say, a 500cc Rebel, brackets, this is me putting the brackets in, under 50 horsepower, will, I believe, leave her restricted to lower power machines and needing to take a full, uh, a further test to ride higher powered machines. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this, Freddie. And if you've come across any higher powered machines for shorter riders, I'm looking to get an unrestricted license. Um, have you heard of anything on your travels? Regards, Nigel. Right, Nigel, I'm glad you highlighted this to me because you're absolutely right. I've done some research. And for your partner, for anyone who wants to pass their A license, meaning they can ride any bike of any size with no restrictions in any element of biking, these are the guidelines. Listen to this. Category A, under direct access. This is for riders aged 24 years old or over. And to obtain a Category A license, you must follow the four following points. Number one, successfully complete a CBT course. Number two, pass your theory test. Number three, pass the practical motorcycle test. And the final point that's very important for you here, Nigel, Passing the practical test on a motorcycle of at least 40 kilowatts, brackets, 53.6 brake horsepower, will give you immediate access to all sizes of motorcycle. This is harder than I thought, and I, I've done some research in Starbucks this morning. First of all, before I, I tell you my findings, now I've got it very clear. 
this would be hugely appreciated. Anyone out here listening to the podcast, I'm looking for a motorcycle with 55 horsepower minimum with a low seat height, maximum price, let's say four to five thousand pounds and retro styled. If you know of any of those, let me know. I'll share it on the podcast. My initial thoughts after spending a few a few minutes, Nigel, looking at this, I thought, oh, easy, fine. Motor Goodsy V7, 750cc model. Brilliant. Low seat height, retro looks, get it for 4K. I then looked and it's 52 horsepower. This is harder than it looks to get a lovely looking retro modern classic motorcycle, low seat height that's around about the 4K mark. That's 1.6 horsepower, too little. I think I've only found you one, Nigel. Really, only one. And it's a Ducati. The Ducati Scrambler 800cc. That is, let's see if I've got one up here just to show you. Uh, Ducati. Here we go. Okay, have a listen to this. Ducati Scrambler 800cc. It is, it's got, sorry, a seat height of 798 millimetres. And that, and I have checked, that compares favourably to other motorcycles in the class. And I've I've tried to be as, as thorough as possible here. It's got a seat height of 798 millimetres. If we compare it to a Moto Guzzi, for example, V7, that's got a seat height of 790 millimetres. So this Ducati is eight millimetres more. You know, I, I then thought, Nigel, look, let's have a look at the Kawasaki W800. But that's just, that's just 47 horsepower. That's got a seat height of 790 mil, but that's not powerful enough. Held Classic, not powerful enough. Triumph Bonneville. Uh, that's got a seat height of 790 mil. You know, the Bonneville's always a good shout, of course, with a slightly lower seat height. Uh, that can be done easily for £4,000. Um, and one other, Ducati Scrambler 62, but no, that's 400cc and just 40 horsepower. So the seat height from this 800cc Ducati Scrambler is, is favourable. You know, it's right down there amongst the lower seat height bikes, such as the, the Bonnevilles and things like that. You can get one, and I found one here, Nigel, on Facebook. I'll include a link in the written description. £4,600 for one of these. They're also extremely light, fully fueled up. It's 189 kilograms, and that is hugely favourable to the likes of the Bonneville. So you've got a nice and low seat height from this 800cc scrambler. You've got a much, much lower weight than a lot of bikes in the category. You know, lower weight than the, the much lesser horse pad, interceptors, BSA Gold Star, Bonneville, Moto Guzzi. Take your pick. This is very possibly the lowest weight in its class. And the fact that you can find one on Facebook Marketplace for around about £4,650, private seller, so let's say you can get that down to below £4,500, bear in mind we're now in the winter, you're going to be able to pick up a bargain now. If ever there's a time to pick up a bargain, it'll be just after Christmas, when everyone's suddenly decided either I need an upgrade or I just fancy a change. This is your time now. Nigel, to, to go out and get a bargain. Take a look at that. In my eyes, this is the best bike that will fit your wife's requirements. I move on. Uh, did I say, sorry, um, horsepower? Let me see if I've just got this open still. I completely forgot to mention the horsepower of the Ducati is... Do, 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 see if I've got it open somewhere. No, I think it's 72 horsepower, if my memory serves me correctly. It's way over the 55 that you need anyway. Do, 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 see if I can find it at the top of my head. No, but I think it's about 72 horsepower, Nigel. So you'll be more than fine from a horsepower point of view with that. Let me know if you go for that. And anyone else, let me know if there's a better option than that Ducati. Right, I move on.
uh, from Brendan. Have a listen. Uh, Brendan, I haven't heard that name since my grandparents, my grandparents' neighbours in Donegal, Ireland. Must be Irish with that name. Um, have a listen to this. Hi, Freddie. Caught up with the latest podcast. Oh, I like this. I like this. This is very good. This leads on perfectly. So, Nigel, your wife being a shorter rider, have a listen to this. This is from Brendan. Freddie, I caught up on the latest podcast and thought I'd offer some advice for, for other short riders. I have a little YouTube video about it, uh, a little video about it on YouTube um, in a nutshell. So I'll try, and, I'll try and link up this YouTube video from Brendan. Um, I'll try and find it and, uh, and include this. I think it's the Pint Size Biker, so you can Google it, but I'll, I'll find a link as well. Um, and I wanted to offer some advice to shorter riders. There are five points here. Number one, good quality boots with good tread. The biggest risk of being short is dropping the bike at standstill or low speed. And often it's when you lose balance on your feet and, uh, and that it happens. Number two, think about what foot to put down before you stop. If you leave it too late, it's those occasions you lose balance and fall. Gently lean the bike to one side on your confident leg. If unsure when going to a junction, then stop and put, uh, and put foot down. No shame in taking a bit longer. It's better than falling over. Number three, practice with the bike, but not in front of people so that you can learn what works for you. Things like putting it on a main stand or other awkward things like side stand location, pushing it while sat on it or getting off and pushing it. Most things are a knack. For example, it's worked out easier for my partner to get on the bike first, slide onto the pillion seat and then, uh, and then I get on, uh, which is opposite to what you normally do, but it works for us. Number four, fit crash bars. They do topple over sometimes and crash bars might not save your blushes uh, when it comes, uh, but it could save your levers so that you can get home or save you a fortune on fairing repair. Number five, sit on many bikes before you buy so you can get used to their weight and seat height. Finally, if worst happens and you lose your balance, just don't worry about it. Brendan, thanks so much for that. Extremely useful advice. I also really like the very simple bit of advice you gave. Practice, but not in front of people. This is just a brilliantly simple bit of advice. A lot of the time, it's so much easier to just go out there and practice. You know, I know we all need, we all need um, professional training when it comes to biking. But after that, I found that you know, I just learned so quickly, just going out by myself, practicing, you know, changing gears, braking and maneuvering the bike, you know, in a car park by myself or just out on the open road. You learn very quickly and without the stress of someone watching you. Um, it's a really nice addition to that professional training. And it's a very, very good bit of advice because I, I get embarrassed, you know, fairly easily. Um, and, and sometimes I black out if I'm put in a, a pressurized situation, just completely black out, lose any sense of, of normality or any sense of common sense and reason. And I forget absolutely everything. Happened in my biking test. I was doing a figure of eight and I blacked out. Couldn't remember where I was in the figure of eight. Had to put my foot down, look at the examiner and say, I'm sorry, I've forgotten where I was. And of course I failed. I must have looked like I had some, some issues. Ridiculous. So I agree with that completely, Brendan. Thank you, Brendan. Moving on. From the USA. Oh, I, this, here we go. I read this a few days ago. Uh, have a listen. Hi, Freddie. First off, a bit about my interest in motorcycles. I'm the same age as you. And I've always loved movies like Mad Max, uh, anything Steve McQueen, Easy Rider, etc. 
My dream bike has always been a Bonneville due to my father having a 1969 Triumph many years before I was born, so I've always had an affection for classic British bikes. Earlier this year, my older brother died. He had a 2019 Royal Enfield Continental GT650, which he had done some small improvements on, uh, SNS exhaust, bar end mirrors, etc. And I've since inherited that bike, and it means the world to me. So I've dropped into the world of motorbiking and want to make him proud by riding the hell out of his bike and living my best life to the fullest. Side note, I'll be doing the Distinguished Gentleman's Ride in Philadelphia this year. Now that's all out the way, I wanted to let you and stateside riders know something very unique about motorcycles in the state of Pennsylvania that often shocks even those who live here. Uh, Pennsylvania is the only state in the entire USA that offers a free motorcycle safety course. You first must pass your, pass your test to get your permit. It costs $10 and, is, uh, and it is a written test. Once you have your permit, the only restrictions on riding are you cannot ride at night and can't have a passenger unless it's a licensed instructor. Aside from that, you basically have full riding privilege and can also take uh, the rider course. I did this, then enrolled on the course. The beginner course was two days, and each day consisted of three hours in the classroom and six hours riding on bikes that they provide, an assortment of small bikes. I chose the BMW G310. At the end of the course, you do your driver test on the same lot you've, uh, you'd been training, followed by the written test. Upon completion, upon successful completion, of the class, you receive your full operation license right then. In the short time, the class uh, in the short time the class was so thorough, there were students who had never touched a motorcycle, and they were able to pass their test for the license after just two days. It's an amazing opportunity that our state provides, and there is no excuse for anyone who lives here not to utilize it. I had a small amount of riding experience before the class. Then afterwards, I felt so much more confident in my riding. I'll leave it there as I could go on and on, but I hope you found this interesting. I promise I'll be in contact in the future as well. Happy riding. Cheers. All from the USA. Thank you for sending that over. First of all, about, about your, your father and brother. I'm so sorry to hear about your brother, but it's, it's just really amazing the way that you know bikes can not only transcend generations you know but also keep that attachment alive you know your memories about your dad and his his triumph and then your brother to pass down that royal enfield continental to you i can imagine i can imagine how much that bike will mean to you for the rest of your life to be able to have that it's fantastic and also the us you know a lot of time, you don't need much to be able to pass your motorcycle test in the US. So to be able to offer a free course, free rider training in Pennsylvania is amazing. One thing that always surprises me in the US is or are the differences state to state with, with driving and riding requirements. You know, fascinated to hear from any Americans listening. Am I right in thinking that if you pass a driving, a car driving test or motorcycle test in one state, it doesn't mean that you can drive or drive long term and, and settle down, relocate to another state and you have that test. It, it could mean that after a year you have to completely do redo your driving test and riding test in another state to be able to legally stay living there and riding or driving. The, the, the differences from state to state, it can be like it's a completely different country. It's, it's fascinating the way it works in the USA. Uh, I know a lot of the time in different places, you know, rules are very different. I think, for example, and tell me if I'm wrong, am I right that in some states, 
smoking marijuana, marijuana usage is completely legal, but in others it's not legal. In some states you've got the death penalty, in others you don't have the death penalty. There are so many differences from state to state. It's, it's really fascinating. Thank you and sending all of my very best to you in the USA and I hope you get so, so many happy miles out of the continental. I'm moving on. I'm actually getting told off again here. I think this this podcast episode is predominantly about me apologising and or getting told off. I'm starting here with JB, who's who's always very level-headed, so let me read this out to you. JB in Scotland. Here we go. Freddie, no, no, no. Four exclamations. You advised a listener to leave old fuel in the bike for a year. Once upon a time, that was fine for leaded fuel and pre-bioethanol, but most pump fuel now has ethanol and often up to 10%. This stuff really isn't optimised for bikes. Especially an issue for carved bikes, but electric electronic fuel injection too. Ethanol gelifies when left over time, and especially in the cold, it can clog up the float bows, jets, and even injectors. It's a key problem for car bikes, not to mention the corrosive effects ethanol on internals, diaphragms and pipes. Have a read here. I'll get to that in a second, JB. I'm going to carry on your, uh, your message here. Continuing from JB. My advice, use 5% super ethanol, avoid ethanol E10 if possible, and use carb or injector additives if the bike has been left for a while and every few thousand miles. If leaving a bike for a while, uh, then if carb, close the petcock and drain the carb. If injected, then ideally drain the tank. Best you and Monica, JB Scotland. Uh, yeah, okay, that's that's interesting actually, JB. Let me see if I've still got this open because I, I had a quick look at the link that you sent me. Let's have a look. Uh, I'll tell you what I'll do. I will. I'll see if I can find this on my phone because my phone has... Uh, let's have a look because my phone's got internet. So this is under... This is under Bennett's. Bennett's E10 fuel, because I had a read of this in Starbucks, and this this did shock me a bit. Okay, pops up very easily. Let me just see if I can read a few key points from here. This is the article JB sent. The title of the article, What is E10 fuel and is it safe for your bike? So what is E10 fuel? It's now the standard premium unleaded. Um, Premium tag is a hangover from the days when low octane fuel, like two star was still available. Um, Is actually E5, which means gasoline loud, mixed with 5% ethanol. Okay, okay, sorry. So it now sounds like, yeah, the standard premium is E5 fuel, but now the proposed E10 fuel, which is already offered in some European countries, increases the allowed percentage of ethanol from 5% to 10%, sorry. Because ethanol is a renewable fuel made from crops rather than distilled from crude oil, it reduces the CO2 emissions. It's seen as greener than purely oil-derived petrol formulas. Okay, so the ethanol is a renewable fuel made from crops and it reduces CO2 emissions. Okay, how much would E10 fuel reduce emissions? According to government figures, the existing E5 fuel reduces UK road transport CO2 emissions by 888,000 tonnes per year. That's 2018 figures. And moving to E10 could cut another 700,000 tonnes of CO2 emissions per year. Right, that's all very good. But what are the problems with E10 fuel? Now, have a listen to this. Even if the emissions, this is from Bennett's Bike Social, even if the emissions benefits are relatively small, a switch to higher ethanol content petrol could still have benefits. After all, ethanol is renewable and the UK's own billion pound bioethanol production industry is currently operating below its potential capacity. Yada, 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 yada. 
However, adding it to petrol doesn't come without a price, both figuratively and literally. Ethanol might mix with petrol and burn, but there's no guarantee that every bike will be able to use E10. The current E5 standard was adopted because it was considered that 5% ethanol ratio um, was the maximum that engines and fuel systems designed for conventional petrol could safely deal with. That's an interesting point. I continue. Rising above that figure brings risk, particularly to older vehicles. The government's own consultation document says, and I quote, vehicle compatibility has been the main barrier to the introduction of E10 so far. Not all vehicles have been approved by the manufacturers for use with fuel with more than 5% ethanol. This is because higher blends of ethanol can cause corrosion of some rubbers and alloys used in the engine and fuel systems for some older vehicles. It goes on to dismiss the problem by focusing on people's everyday cars and saying, that as they're scrapped and replaced with newer models, the problem will diminish. The document says, while there are currently around 400,000 cars that fit the description, this figure is expected to half by 2021. At that point, these vehicles can represent less than 1% of the total car park. You'll notice there's no mention at all of motorcycles, and this is the issue. I'll read the final bit here. Uh, in fact, I could go on and on. It gets more and more alarming. Um, but the average UK age of a bike is 14.7 years old. And the vast number come from the days before manufacturers had consider, considered using these uh, ethanol fuels. Ethanol is hygrosopic, which means it absorbs and mixes with water, even drawing it from the air around it. Yeah, okay, it, it is a bit worrying, actually. It is. You know, the the idea that you could be putting your vehicle at risk of rust. And JB, I've never really, actually, I've never properly considered using fuel additives. Um, please let me know. I'm really curious about this. What's the general feeling on fuel additives? I just remember someone about three years ago, I'm sure I remember someone saying it's best not to use them, but I can't remember if that was from a, a reliable, trustworthy source or not. Is it common to use fuel additives? Let me know if you use it, if you rate them, uh, and let me know if you don't. So JB, thank you for bringing that to my attention. JB, I'll also answer your question I forgot to answer last week. Guilty pleasure bikes. What are those bikes that you feel you really shouldn't like or they, they really don't fit with the kind of biker that you think you are but actually deep down you love them i've got three of them jb immediately number one this is just so ridiculous but suzuki hayabusa that's that's my first guilty pleasure bike i've never ridden one but this is the ridiculously powerful 1300 cc suzuki what would you call it? Hyperbike, I guess. It was one of the original hyperbikes. Ludicrous levels of power, completely impractical. Looks like a rocket. But there's something about it. You know, I remember when I passed my test, it was kind of the joke bike, but in a good way. You know, I, it sounds like it's not funny, actually, but I, we always used to joke with my friends when we all passed our test. Like We said, oh, what, what bike do you think you're getting? And, you know, casually straight face are oh, probably gonna pick up a Hayabusa over the weekend you know because it's such a ridiculous bike to consider because of the massive massive amounts of power you know just saying that I don't know if it's funny it's probably an in joke that no one else would find funny but I I've always had this weird soft spot for the Hayabusa number two JB would be the old classic Honda Goldwings you know I'm thinking from the Probably the 80s or 90s, you know, those real almost boxy styled ones. I love the look of those. And the third one, Harley Davidson Street Glide. You know, the colossal Harley Davidson with the, the integrated hard panniers and the two speakers on either side. I just love the idea of having those two speakers, music playing, full wind protection on the front, gigantic bike, but just amazing for cruising around i can imagine this setting off early you know early one morning and going out for a, a, a one week tour or something like that so easy to pack those hard panniers up maybe strap a tent to the back 
and turn on the radio and you've got the speakers blasting out as you're just powering down the motorway. Oh, that, that sounds magical to me, really magical. I think one day I'll own one of those. I, I move on to... From Tim. Freddie, different is not always... Sorry, I just went completely blank there, just checking. Yep, perfect, just had an email. I'm waiting for one important email, and I just had a flash up, but it's not it. Freddie, different is not always worse. I was interested to hear your views on electric cars and bikes. I would say that I'm definitely a petrol head, always have been. However, I'm now in my 40s with two little ones. Priorities have changed. Um, when the first one was due, or priorities changed when the first one was due. I suddenly looked at outgoings and knew that they needed reducing. This and the passion for all things quirky led me to my first electric car seven years ago. I think, therefore, that I can offer a very unique perspective on electric cars that few people can. At the time, it was a very unproven concept, and Nissan were doing deals virtually giving Nissan leaves away. I got a top-of-the-line Nissan Leaf on PCP for £200 PCM per common month and no deposit. This lasted for two years, the end of which had a huge balloon payment, so I happily sent the car back. However, still being very much off the radar, second-hand Nissan Leafs were, um, were very cheap. I bought a two-year-old one for around £10,000, which was half the price of a VW Golf. I've had it ever since. Lessons learned here. Number one, the Leaf is a second car. We also have a people carrier for the longer haul. The Leaf would not suit as the only means of transport, as the range is honestly about 70 miles if on motorways. So for anyone who has a two-car household, something like a Leaf is a perfect second car. Point two. Electric cars should be cheap modes of commuter transport. Car manufacturers targeted high-end markets as they are not geared up yet to produce cheap cars. That and chip shortages and tax incentives led them to making less cars for a lot more money and targeting higher earners. These cars are not the answer. Point three. Charging infrastructure is still patchy at best, but this doesn't matter with, uh, for what the car's used for. As a second car, I have only charged it up at a rapid station maybe three times in seven years. It's charged on the drive overnight on a cheap tariff, tariff when all electric tends to be from renewable wind. I wake up to a preheated, fully charged car and go on my merry way. No filling up hassle. Point four. I've had the current leaf for four plus years. In that time, it's had two tyres, a windscreen motor fixed and that is it. No servicing needed at all. By far the cheapest transport I've ever owned. Electricity has gone up but not as much as petrol in the same period. Point five. For what it's used for, it's perfect. Immediate on-off power always wins the away from the lights race. It's quiet, has immediate heat in the morning, comfy ride and no noise. The perfect commuter. So overall, electric cars should be cheap city cars. When batteries become cheaper, then yes, uh, they may replace petrol as, as a long-haul option, but certainly a few years off. From my point of view, it freed up a lot of cash when needed. Seven years on, the car is fully paid off a long time ago. A free car with no road tax, just electric. Very basic maintenance, insurance, and MOT to pay for. It allows me to indulge in my passions. I currently have an extra... I currently have uh, an XJR X308, the best-looking saloon ever made, Royal Enfield Interceptor, and an old BMW GS1200, none of which I could justify for running a standard car. It's difficult for petrol heads to accept electric as they've bought into a certain dogma, but all I would say is open your mind to different possibilities. I don't see why the two have to be mutually exclusive. I liken it to when, uh, to what you say about opening your mind to considering lesser-powered bikes. Different, but not necessarily worse. All the best, Tim. 
That, that's probably some of the most interesting owner insight I've had from an electric vehicle, Tim. The point you make that, that really stuck in my mind, you know, the servicing. You don't have servicing. You know, I knew that electric vehicles were, you know, were very light on the servicing, but especially when we're looking at a, a, some cheap city transport, you know, you just want it to do the daily grind simply with no stress. I hate filling up, for example. I hate it. So the fact that, especially live in a house, of course, the fact that you can just go downstairs to a warm, heated car and really not worry about maintenance at all is brilliant. What have you done? Change the windscreen, if, if, if I remember correctly. Two tyres, a windscreen motor, and that's it in four years brilliant it makes a huge amount of sense and i do agree why does it have to be mutually exclusive either you like electric or you like petrol you know at least for now until the technology improves or the infrastructure improves why can't they run side by side and i completely agree with you you know because a lot of the time for the, the city driving you, you just want something absolutely basic that can get you from point A to point B with the least amount of stress and cost possible. Also quite interesting, you know, 70 miles on, uh, on the range uh, of, that, of that leaf. It's quite interesting to see what the reality of that is. You know, the fact it's 70 miles, I thought maybe it could be up to 120, but I've also heard some Nissan leaf owners saying they've got it, you know, just 50 miles sometimes after it's done you know, or had a hard life or done a lot of miles on the batteries as they degrade or lose their, their full capability. Thank you for that. Really fascinating, Tim. Fascinating to hear that. I move on to Nick. Freddie, as an Interceptor owner, I was really interested by your Speed Twin 900 review. The Interceptor's my first bike. I was considering the Street Twin as well, but something to note is that the insurance for my Interceptor was half the price uh, of the quotes compared to the Street Twin, something new riders m might want to keep in mind. Plus, I believe the Interceptor's more economical, which is a bonus in these hard times. Happy Christmas, Nick. Uh, again, Nick, it's not something I looked into, the insurance costs, but you're completely right with this, especially for newer riders. You know, it's very easy for me to forget this. My insurance now on the Bonneville, I think it's, I think, if I remember correctly, it's £90 a year, so it's so small, it, it, it's meaningless. But I remember the first year or two riding. You know, you, there can be a... There can easily be a £500 difference from bikes that you don't see as being hugely different in, different in terms of performance. You know, that extra 20 horsepower and the extra value of the Triumph over the Interceptor can add a huge amount to your annual premium. Interestingly, Nick, I think, I think the MPG, the economy of the, the street, the Speed Twin 900 at 69 MPG miles per gallon is exactly the same as the Interceptor, if not even slightly better. It's very, very good on the Bonneville or the Speed Twin 900, but you're absolutely right in that overall cost of maintenance. It must be way cheaper on the Interceptor. You know, living with it on a daily basis, the Interceptor, it will be cheaper to repair, cheaper to maintain, cheaper to look after in general. And and that starts adding up those kinds of costs. So that is a very, very good point. I often think about that when looking at a bike for myself. You know, how much is it going to cost to maintain? If you go to completely the other end of the spectrum, look at the Triumph Rocket. You know, I've heard people saying one and a half thousand pounds services are not ridiculously uncommon for that bike. You know, it, it makes a difference. These simpler bikes, you know, a lot of the time they're just easier to live with. Just simpler is easier. You know, lower powered almost always means it's going to be cheaper and simpler to maintain. Thank you for sending that over, Nick. Uh, and a great choice. What an amazing first bike. Interceptor. Fantastic. I move on. Freddie, I hope all's good. 
Have you any plans to test the Royal Enfield Hunter when you get a chance? They're really killing it with bikes at the moment with the price and styling. The Hunter's ticking a hell of a lot of boxes. Um, also, I just randomly found this on Facebook Marketplace. Kawasaki Zephyr 1100. I'm not usually a fan of this style of bike, but there's something beautiful about the lines on this one with all of the black fairings. Hopefully the link works. Okay, first point, yeah, it's a great shout. Don't I'm so sorry, I didn't save your name. That is a great shout, the Hunter. The Hunter is 3,800 pounds, and it looks really quite similar to the Triumph Speed Twin 900 at eight and a half thousand pounds. 5,000 pounds more for the Triumph. Of course, you get way more quality and way more performance from the Triumph. But £3,800 for a bike that looks really good. 20 horsepower, so not much at all. But you can still do everything on that bike. I mean, yeah, you can go on the motorway. It's not going to be going much above 70 miles an hour, maybe 80 if you're lucky. But it can still do it. It still opens up biking to so many people. Cool, desirable biking. £3,800. You know, for a bike that actually looks very similar to the Triumph Speed Twin 900, I must try one of those because Royal Enfield are putting people into biking. They're enthusing people about biking. They're getting more people than have possibly ever been interested in biking into biking because they're making cool bikes accessible for the masses. And that's why I've got such an incredible soft spot for Royal Enfield. They just get it, you know. The argument I often put across, a bike should be way, way cheaper than a car. Well, there you go, you've got one. £3,800 for a really cool bike. It's nothing, I mean, relatively speaking, of course, but it's nothing. It's way cheaper than any car you could ever dream of, exactly how it should be. Moving on to Rob in the US. Rob sent me over this article. 27% of people said that they would uh, said that they would want to own this classic Harley Davidson the most. The Harley Davidson, well Harley Davidson is undeniably one of the most iconic motorcycle brands around. We asked our readers which Harley Davidson model they liked the most. This comes from Apple News. The top ranked was clinched by the 1965 Harley Davidson Electroglide. Um, it's uh, a bike that still stands the test of time. One of, uh, do, 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 oh, sorry, 27.7% uh, voted in favour of the 1965 Electroglide, which happens to be one of the oldest motorcycles still in production. I, I honestly think, Rob, with this, you know, the Harley Davidson Electroglide being voted by. Um, you know, by Harley Davidson fans and owners as uh, the, you know, the bike they would like to own most. I, th I think a big part of this does bear on the fact that the Electroglide is still in production. You know, when a vehicle, whether it's a car or a motorbike, stays in continuous production and or comes back into production, it reinvigorates us. It... We, we gain a new sense of enthusiasm, a sense of nostalgia to that vehicle. And I've got a few examples. You know, if you look at, look at the likes of the Suzuki Jimny that's come back. You know, I remember when you could pick up an old Suzuki Jimny for eight or nine hundred pounds. They were worthless. New Jimny comes along and suddenly those prices are going up to about three to five thousand pounds for those old Jimnys because suddenly everyone remembers with a, a fonder heart the original Jimnys. You could say it with the Bonneville, the Interceptor, you know, keeping these old names alive in modern day, you know, still being sold. BSA Gold Star, Jeep Wrangler, you know, you, you, you build up this warm place in your heart when a bike has been around for so long. And that Harley Davidson is a perfect example of that. You know, the fact it's the the longest or one of the longest running bikes in production is is a huge reason I think you know why people have such a, a strong affinity for that the Electroglide 1965 I mean that must have been in continuous production for over 60 years then 
the Electroglide. It's absolutely incredible. The same model of bike, same model in continuous production for over 60 years. Absolutely incredible. And uh, I get that. I'm a big fan of that bike. I get that. I just want to move back to one more thing I forgot about. Kawasaki Zephyr 1100 uh, on Facebook Marketplace. I have to say, if anyone's interested in this, go and have a look because this is a really beautiful looking bike. Let's see if I can find it quickly. No, oh, it's just popped off. But it's £2,250 for, I think it was uh, something like a 1994 or so, Kawasaki Zephyr, all in black. That is a huge amount of bike for the money. I'll try and include a link in the written description because that is a stunningly good-looking bike. Really, really mean. I'm sure it's a gigantic beast. But to get a bike of that level all in black that actually looks like it would stand up in a showroom for a modern classic kind of bike. It almost looks bang up to date in a funny way. Really good pick there. I'll include that. Kawasaki Zephyr 1100. What a bike. I move on. Oh, the last one. The last one for the day. From Nick. Freddie. Uh, oh, I like this. This is a nice place to finish. Um, buying my bike has been the best purchase I ever made, especially a modern classic. I'm stuck in my career for another seven to ten years. I'll be 52 or 55 when I retire, all going well. And then I'll have the time to take off whenever I want. Whilst I really enjoy my work, the bike has given me a sense of freedom. All the best, Nick. Oh, Nick. It's just amazing, isn't it? That's That's biking. It's more than anything, more than any bike. It's what it represents. It's absolute freedom. Like a car can give you freedom, but on a, another level. You know, it's on an, a level up from the freedom that a car gives you because you're just, you're just exposed to all of the elements. Traffic doesn't exist. You pack up your bike. I often say, a bike it's like a modern day version of, you know, the, the cowboys going around on their horses. You know, you, you pack up your steed, you head off into the great unknown. It's got that pure freedom adventure vibe about it. And it doesn't matter if you're 18 or 25 and just getting into biking or you're about to retire. It's that exact same level of freedom, same level of adventure that we can all enjoy. It's a fantastic thing. Nick? but you're counting down the days. Thank you so much. We'll end it there. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to this week's episode. And thank you so much, everyone, for listening, supporting, sending in your, uh, your comments, your messages, your suggestions over the past year. I hope you all have an incredible Christmas, an amazing new year. And I'm, I'm very grateful to all of you for listening. So sending all my very, very best to everyone around the world who listens. Have an amazing one all. Bye-bye.